And so in 1945, a man by the name of Jim Elliott, he enrolled uh, in a college in Wheaton, Illinois called Wheaton College, and his major was Bible. Six years before Jim Elliott enrolled at Wheaton College, a man by the name of Billy Graham also enrolled at the same college. Well, fast forward uh, to 1949, Billy Graham has graduated from college and he holds his first of what we know of many things called crusades. And at this first crusade, 6,000 people showed up to listen to this man preach the gospel. Around the same time, Jim Elliott is just now graduating and he is considering going into the mission field and a tribe in Ecuador, they're, they're known to be very violent. There's even like hearsay of them being um, cannibals. And he hears of this people called the Aka people in Ecuador, or Aqua, depending on your pronunciation, but I'm going to call them the Aka. They're there in Ecuador. They've never been reached. The gospel has never been preached to them. And so while Billy Graham, um, he is preaching crusades to thousands, Jim Elliott is considering going to share the gospel with a group of people who are violent and don't speak English and who have never heard the gospel. Well, fast forward to 1956, so it's seven years later, they've uh, had several contacts with this tribe. So Jim Elliott and a, a couple of his friends, they fly this uh, small aircraft. And actually, this pilot is, is so amazing that he's able to do really tight circles in the airplane and they lower a bucket down as they're doing circles but they make contact with this tribe um, and after many of these contacts they're like passing back and forth what they think are like gifts certainly jim elliott and his friends are giving gifts to this tribe but they think they're receiving gifts back from from this tribe well after kind of being encouraged and having this exchange with these people they decide well it's time to get on the ground and have a face-to-face interaction with the people of this tribe and so they do just that. They, they paddle up the river, they uh, land on basically a sandbar, and they are waiting for the people to come because days before they went in the airplane and in really uh, simple native Aka tongue, they basically said, we're coming. And so like to meet them at this place. Well, three women uh, come out and, to meet them. Only two of them appear. There's a third standing off like in the bushes, kind of hidden and so they see them, they, they greet them, and, and then what happens next is Jim Elliott's standing in the river, and um, a spear comes out of the, the wilderness and goes through his friend. And then a, another spear comes and pierces Jim Elliott, uh, and they were murdered almost immediately. Well, the year after that, in 1957, Billy Graham preaches in New York City a 16-week crusade that ended with a total of 2,397,400 people coming to hear the gospel. The year after that crusade, so 1958, Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, she goes back to this tribe, and two years after living with this tribe, almost all of them hear and believe the gospel. And Billy Graham, at the end of his life, a very, very long life, it's said that he preached 417 crusades, meet, reaching 84 million people face-to-face like this, and almost 215 million if you add TV and radio to that. Why do I tell you the story of those two men? Because of what we are going to learn here in, in the book of Ruth. And it's basically what I said Sunday, and I modified a little bit. It's that God uses the circumstances of our lives to show us that Jesus's death and resurrection are the only promise of rescue. God uses the circumstances of individual people's lives 
to show us that Jesus' death and resurrection are the only promise of rescue. And what I need you to understand as we look at the book of Ruth, but also as we consider Jim Elliott and Billy Graham, is that neither of those men was greater than the other. One had a long life with a massive amount of people who heard the gospel through his his preaching, and yet you have a, another man who is willing to do things that nobody else is willing to do, and he didn't even get to share the gospel. Why do I say that neither of those is greater? Well, it's because God uses the circumstances of every life to reveal to us that Jesus' death and resurrection are the only promise of rescue, right? God's plan of redemption for his people is revealed in life and it's revealed in death. That means God has a purpose for everything. There, there is nothing that stands outside of the purpose of God. Not a long life, not a short life. All of it stands in God's good purposes and all of it has meaning to point us to Jesus. So look with me at Ruth. And just to recap, we have this uh, woman named Naomi, and we have her two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and, unfortunately, Orpah. Naomi's husband dies. Her two sons die, which are the husbands of Ruth and Orpah. And they find themselves in kind of basically this horrible situation. They, they have nothing. Everything has been taken from them. And for Naomi, she's not even in her homeland of, of Bethlehem. She's in a foreign land because there has been a famine, and the next thing you know, her husband and her sons are dead, and all she has is these two daughter-in-laws. And while I'm sure she loves them, her husband has died, her sons have died, and to be honest, maybe Ruth and Orpah are just a reminder of what she used to have that she no longer has. So she tells them, go home. I have nothing for you. I have no sons for you to marry. Go home. And so we're going to pick up in uh, verse 6 and read through 22. And we'll finish chapter one tonight. So starting in verse six, then she arose with her daughters, that's Naomi, her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard that the fields of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people and given food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you uh, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. That is your new husband that you'll find in your homeland. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that you may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this very night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Verse 15, and she said, see your sister-in-law, that is Orpah, has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, 
Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. All right, so I have two points. The first is this. God uses what is unfamiliar to us for his good purposes. So the easiest thing for Ruth to do at this moment, and Orpah sees this, and she, uh, she obliges. The easiest thing for Ruth is to just go home, right? Naomi knows it. Naomi knows all of the circumstances. Number one, I'm old. Number two, don't have any sons for you. I have no more sons for you to have husbands. Number three, by the way, I'm old, uh, but even if I did get a husband this very night, it would take at least nine months to have another child, and then are you going to wait years and years and years to marry this man? So she knows that the easiest thing for Ruth is to just go home. Take the easy road. That's what Naomi tells Ruth. And the truth is, Ruth knows that that's the easy road. But what Ruth does is not the easy thing. She stays with her mother-in-law and she says, essentially, by, by clinging to her, I'm not going to abandon you in your pain and in your time of need. And so what Ruth is doing is she is serving as a model here in the Bible in the eighth book of what it means to actually love someone sacrificially. Instead of doing that, which honestly makes more sense, like if you think about it in terms of what's easiest, what's best, probably what's most comfortable, she doesn't choose that. She sacrifices everything, right? That's what verse 16 and 17 are saying. Look at that. Look, look, look again, verse 16 and 17. Do not urge me to leave. Where you go, I'll go. Where you sleep, I'll sleep. Your people shall become my people. And by the way, your God, I'll worship him as my God. And in fact, in case you're confused by anything I'm saying, where you die, I'll die. I'm not going anywhere, Naomi. I'm, I'm with you. What Ruth does is she relinquishes everything. She lets go of her Moabite people she lets go of the God of the Moabites. She lets go of her mother's home in Moab. She lets go of the prospect of finding a, a nice strapping Moab husband and having wonderful, beautiful Moabite babies to go to a place where she is going to be rejected. Ruth is going into a place where she ain't like everyone else. So Ruth is saying, okay, everything that's familiar to me, everything that's comfortable, everything that's easy, everything that's natural, everything that makes sense, I'm going to give all of that up and I'm going to take on the life of Naomi. All that you are, I'm going to become all of that, right? It doesn't really make sense. Why are you doing this, Ruth? Why are you going into this place? Why are you making your life difficult? Essentially, Ruth is looking at Naomi and saying, I'm willing to never be the same person ever again. I'm willing to leave the old Ruth behind. And in fact, she saw loving her mother-in-law as far superior to living a life of comfort. She was going to sacrifice everything. And she, in that moment, said, you know what? Sacrificing everything is better than staying here and being the same person and worshiping the same God and living in the same town. We, we come to this crossroads that Ruth came to. You have Naomi standing here and you have Ruth and Orpah 
And they come to this moment where they have to make a decision. Are you, are you going to do what makes sense and stay? Or are you going to go this, this other route? This kind of unknown, this route of sacrifice, this route of things aren't going to be the same as they were, right? We're scared of being uncomfortable. We're scared of being different. We're scared of not being the same person we once were. We're scared of being rejected as this new person. And we're scared of being in unfamiliar places. But what we see in Ruth is she is saying this was exactly where she was supposed to be. She was actually supposed to be in the unfamiliar place, that that was the best place for her. And she's essentially saying, I understand the decision I'm making. I understand there are two roads that I can take. One is easy, one is not easy, but I know that one is right and the other is not. And what I'm telling you, Naomi, is that going back and settling back into everything that makes sense, that's the easy choice, but it's not the right choice. I'm going to go where you go. I'll die where you die. Here, here's the thing. You, you may be facing unfamiliar things right now. Maybe you feel like the Lord is calling you to share your faith, and you've actually never shared your faith with your friends. And so the normal road for you is to go to school tomorrow and just jump right into the normal habit. But maybe the unfamiliar thing the Lord is urging you towards is actually going and talking about your faith with your friends tomorrow. That's the unfamiliar territory that the Lord is pushing you to, but that you are terrified of. Maybe you have a friend who claims to be a Christian who is living a life that doesn't match the Bible, and the normal course of action is for you to go be with that friend and do everything you can to not talk about your faith. Let's not talk about being Christians. Let's not talk about the gospel. Let's not talk about any of it because it makes me uncomfortable. In fact, I don't even think you're a Christian. So let's just try to like talk about all the, like, hey, how's the weather today? I don't know, but you're 14. Why are we talking about the weather? I, I don't know. I just, that, that meteorologist, right? You're doing everything you can to keep things off religion because you don't want to have to confront that person. But what the Lord may be doing is pushing you into the unfamiliar, scary territory of saying, hey, you know, I just got to throw it out there. I know we're good friends, uh, and I know that I can say this to you. You claim to be a Christian, but to be honest with you, I don't think you know the Bible. But here's the thing. I would love to sit down with you and talk about it and answer your questions. And if I can't answer them, I have people who can. Would you be willing to talk about it? That's not the easy thing. All right, let's bring it home a little closer. Maybe you're here tonight, and the easy thing to do is to come in, play the games, maybe not play the games, eat the food, maybe not eat the food, but just do the thing you always do every Sunday after Sunday. But maybe the unfamiliar thing is to come here and be like, you know what? Every time this weird bearded man gets up to talk, I just realize it's kind of something this church does. And so that's the thing I have to do to get one step closer to home, right? We got the food, we got the games, the weird bearded man talks. There's actually a weird bearded man who sings before the weird bearded man talks. All kinds of weird bearded things happening around here but I know that I'm getting closer to going home. So I do the weird bearded stuff. Maybe instead of settling into that, you go into the unfamiliar territory of saying, maybe the weird bearded man is talking to me. Maybe the book of Ruth has something it's saying to me. Maybe the gospel that they're always talking about is actually for me. And so instead of coming and just doing the thing that's familiar and easy, it's like, yeah, you know, whatever. I know you're talking to someone else. You know, in fact, I already believe all that. Check. Maybe it's for you to break down some walls and really ask yourself some hard questions. You know, when the weird bearded man talks about the gospel, do I actually know what he's saying? Do I actually believe what he's saying? Here's, 
the reality for all of us. The Lord brings us into these unfamiliar places to do great things for us and through us. The Lord pushes us into these unfamiliar territories to do great things for us and through us. And so while the life of familiarity and ease and normalcy might be just like the easiest thing day to day, at least in the life of Ruth as we go through this book, we're going to see that it's the unfamiliar territory in our lives that the Lord does amazing things. And so the, the reality is, and it's, we're never going to get over this fact, the unfamiliar, it, it scares us. And in fact, the unfamiliar things may cause us to start building up walls. Okay, now the weird bearded man is getting crazy. This past Sunday, I feel like he was actually talking directly to me. So we start building up walls. These unfamiliar places, they scare us. And the temptation is to build up walls to protect us. How do I know this? Because I did it for years. For years, I did this. My youth pastor isn't talking to me. And I'm having this internal dialogue. This is not about me. You're not talking to me. But here's the reality. The unfamiliar things in our life, the unfamiliar places, the difficult circumstances, those don't stop God's plan. You can build all of the walls you want to build. But here's the reality. The Lord will break them down. And he will use those scary things to draw us closer to himself. So the second thing is this. God allows us to sink very low in order to show us that even in those places, we are safe. Now, that sounds crazy and it sounds really stupid, but let me explain. Uh, in verses 19 through 22, basically, Naomi's like, hey, yo, what's up, Bethlehem ladies? Um, I'm back. And they're like, Naomi? And she's like, nah, dog, don't call me Naomi. I'm Mara. And they're all like, I don't know, Naomi, this, you got weird in Moab. <laughs> like, what is happening? And then they're like, well, she did lose her husband and her sons. And so they show her grace, but they're still like, I don't know, Naomi's kind of weird. What's the deep theological truth happening here? The Bible is very complex on this issue. Nothing fancy is happening. Naomi is very sad. She is sadder now than she has ever been in her entire life. That's what's happening. But the Bible tells this about her so we can actually learn something about her God. And it's this. God doesn't forsake those who feel forsaken. Why do we need to hear about Naomi's hurt, her pain, her agony, and quite frankly, the fact that she's a little off her rocker now? Because God doesn't forsake those who feel that they've been forsaken. Your feeling that God has forgotten you because of your circumstances at home, because of the unfairness of your life, because of the sin you struggle with, because of any number of reasons, the fact that you think God has forgotten you doesn't make it true. How do we know? Naomi. God is really, really patient with us. In fact, Naomi says, you know what? Call me Mara. Why? Because God has made my life bitter. And they're like, oh, God is patient with us even when we blame him for all of the wrong that's happening in our life. But here's something you need to understand. God's patience with you allowing you to go through these moments in your life does not mean that he stops moving in your life and growing you in your understanding and your relationship with him. And so most often it's in these low places that we are reminded that God is always working in our lives. And, and here's how we know this, because anytime something bad comes up and you're like, man, this is the lowest of the low, the pit is so deep, I will never emerge from this hole. And then some time goes by and you're no longer in that circumstance. You have emerged from the thing that you once thought was impossible, 
right? The circumstance that you thought had altered your life, things will never be the same. This thing is so tragic in my life that I can never get back to normal. And the next thing you know, what seems impossible has actually been made possible because of God. Here's what we need to see in the life of Naomi here. She's so sad, but it's in this moment that God is going to rescue her. But he does this and he rescues us from our momentary struggles as a way of showing us a kind of preview of a greater eternal rescue that he has for us, right? He's not just doing good things in people's lives just to do it. No, those circumstances always serve in every moment to show us that we have need of greater rescue and that God will provide it, that he has sent his son Jesus to die on a cross and raise from the dead, that anyone who would believe that would not be rescued just from momentary sorrow in their life, but eternal sorrow and punishment in hell. And it's not like a secret formula. You don't have to be the right type of kid. You don't have to come from the right family. You don't have to have anything in order in order to believe and ask God for that rescue. But here's what I want to tell you. If you're an unbeliever right now, that message of rescue to you is an unfamiliar path. It's the path of saying, I'm going to leave all of the familiar things behind and I'm going to become someone new. And that can be a scary, difficult place. But what would Ruth say? It's the right place. It's the right choice. And so as the story unfolds, as we make our way through this book, what we'll be encouraged with is that, yes, life actually is really hard. It is really sad and it is really difficult. So in a strange way, you want to know one of the things I love about the Bible the most is it doesn't like whitewash things. The Bible is not an episode of Barney, right? Where we come and it's like, I love you, right? We turn and we're like, all right, God, what you got for me? There's a lady named Naomi and everyone around her died. What? Why is that actually strangely encouraging? Because your life isn't Barney, right? You, you have hard things you, you deal with. You have difficult circumstances. Even if you're a believer, you have really difficult things you're going through. And if you're an unbeliever, you may feel like attacked right now. Like, what, who are you to say anything about my own belief? Just because I don't believe your message. Life is hard. Things are scary. There's tragedy. There's, there's unspeakable hurt and suffering all around the world right now. But the Bible says, that's true. All of those things are true. But I'm a God who's willing to rescue you. Not necessarily from a car crash. I'm not even necessarily guaranteeing that if you believe the gospel, tomorrow will be a better day for you. What I'm telling you is I will rescue you. I will be your safety forever. In fact, you will be so safe with me that all of the suffering and the hurt and the pain that you could feel, even all of that can't separate you from me. And even if you are to be Jim Elliott and suffer an untimely death, guess what? You will die in a river in Ecuador and you will be ushered into heaven. And guess what? Two years later, your wife's going to go and the whole tribe's going to believe the gospel. What I did not do through you, I did through your wife. But your death was only a part of my plan. And in the end, because of what Christ has done, floating down a river in Ecuador with blood pouring out of you was only a means of coming to me. It's no greater and it's no lesser than Billy Graham preaching to almost two and a half million people. It was just a different plan. Life is anything but easy. And yet the, the story of Ruth reveals to us that God uses it all to reveal his plan of salvation in Jesus. All of it is a reminder that we need rescued. We need rescued in this life and we need rescued in eternity. 
And so all of the circumstances, all of the things, all of this story, all of those things actually serve to point us to and draw us to the cross of Jesus Christ. To realize that when things are hopeless, when things feel that they couldn't get any worse, no matter what, if you have trusted in Christ, you have everything. But here's what you have to do. You have to go into the unfamiliar places and realize that the Lord uses those things in our life to grow us, to draw us closer to Him, and to use us. And He uses the unspeakable hurt and pain and tragedy that we face. He uses those things to show us that there is even greater rescue 